Welcome to CTSNet to Go, bringing your discussions about the most relevant topics in cardiothoracic surgery. The Cardiothoracic Surgery Network, known as CTSNet, aims to connect the global cardiothoracic surgical community through communication, collaboration, education, and interaction among cardiothoracic surgeons and their teams across the globe. Learn more at ctsnet.org. My name is Shanda Blackman, and I'm just one of the hosts of CTS Net to Go. We hope you enjoy. Uh, welcome to this CTS Net interview with the Giants of Cardiothoracic Surgery. Uh, my name is Priyad Aryaratnam, and I'm joined today by uh, Dr. William Bourne, uh, who works at the Birmingham Children's Hospital. Uh, Dr. William Bourne has been a consultant surgeon for over 35 years and has done over a thousand. Uh, procedures in congenital heart surgery, um, particularly the Norwood procedure, which we will be speaking about today. Uh, Dr. Braun is a distinguished congenital cardiac surgeon and has received a CBE from the Queen in 2011 for his work. Uh, thank you very much for joining us today, Dr. Braun. Thank you. Uh, we will begin talking today about hyperplastic left heart syndrome and then talk a little bit more about general aspects of congenital yes. heart surgery, if that's okay. So I'd like, just like to start by asking you, uh, what is hyperplastic uh, left heart syndrome and um, what are its common subtypes? Okay, well, hyperplastic left heart syndrome, as the name implies, is a condition where the children are born without develop under development or almost absence of the left side of the heart. Uh, it was well recognized back in the 1950s and is associated with a very, usually quite a diminutive ascending aorta and abnormalities of the aortic arch. So essentially the left side of the heart, the left ventricle and the vessels leading from it are not any use. And children would die within a few hours or a few days after birth if there was no intervention. And that used to happen and the children used to present very, very sick uh, in the early days. But with the use of introduction really of prostaglandin and keeping their duct open and subsequently the um, antenatal diagnosis of the condition uh, in the vast majority of instances, we can avoid that deterioration. Uh, so with the commencement of prostaglandin soon after birth and uh, transfer to the appropriate unit, those children can be uh, uh, maintained in a stable condition before they go ahead to surgery. But the underlying problem is one of underdevelopment of that left side of the heart. So they don't have any effective systemic output through the left side of the heart. Okay, so you talked a little bit about the natural course of this, if no surgical intervention was um, used. Is surgery the only um, method of correcting this, or uh, not necessarily correcting it, but treating? Yes, I think that the, as far as I know, there's no other method. Um, the problem arises, and over the years, what, we do, what we've recognized is there's quite a spectrum of the condition, ranging from really a slit-like or left side of the heart, left ventricle, which is very difficult to determine where it is, to a situation where the left ventricle is quite well formed, but still uh, cannot cope with the systemic output. So you have quite high EDPs in the left ventricle and secondary pulmonary hypertension. Yeah. And so this uh, leads to problems with uh, how do you deal with these patients in the uh, Know, out on the spectrum of the disease, do you try and make them into a two ventricular pump or not? 
and I think that is still very much unresolved, but various centres are trying to do that. Okay. Um, so you mentioned also that um, these patients, these babies are usually diagnosed um, antenatally. Um, do they, how are they picked up antenatally? Is there well, in most countries now, and particularly in Europe and North America, there are antenatal scans, and uh, particularly at 18 weeks. And that's picked up then, and sometimes you see the evolution of the hyperplasia during subsequent scans. And at that time, of course, if the diagnosis is made of underdevelopment of the left side of the heart, then uh, the families are faced with a, a big problem as to how to proceed. Yep. Um, so they have alternatives really which are presented to them as best we can, yep. that there uh, might be um, termination of the pregnancy or continuing on with some palliative care after delivery or to enter a program now of, of uh, complex palliation of the condition because as you realise we don't cure the condition, it's very dramatically palliated. Um, and how do these babies present once they're born, um, uh, in terms of clinically? Well, as I said, the, in the olden days, as they say, they used to just collapse, and the differential diagnosis then was difficult. Well, they septic was, was very much a shock situation because the, the duct having closed after birth, then the, there was no systemic output, so they prevent very acidotic and near death. Now. Um, now, with the, as, as I said, with the antenatal diagnosis and the introduction of prostaglandin early, hopefully we can avoid that. Although some patients do present in that way now, but it's, it's, it's fairly uncommon. Okay. Um, what do you mean by a staged approach to treating these patients? Well, we have Bill Norwood to thank for that, really, in his work in Boston in the, uh, would have been the uh, late 70s, early 80s, when he, uh, really tried to make the right ventricle support the systemic circulation. We knew already from the work of Francis Fontan that the, um, a single ventricle or univentricular heart was capable of supplying the circulation to the body and that we could connect the veins, the systemic veins, directly to the uh, pulmonary circuit without a pump. So really we were sacrificing one of the pumps or the pump for the systemic circulation and then relying on tidal flow, if you like, or venous pressure to push the blood around the lungs. And that was his view that one could uh, try and uh, do a staged approach that so became known as the Norwood procedure to um, repair the heart or palliate the heart in some way and leave the right ventricle, which was generally quite strong, and we knew from other conditions like congenitally corrected transposition, all the venous operations, the mustard or the sending procedure for transposition, normal transposition, that the right ventricle was capable of supporting the systemic circulation for many, many years. Yeah. So we were then were relying on the right ventricle doing the same in hyperplastic left heart. Okay. And is there a benefit from doing a stage procedure rather than going directly to a Fontaine? Well you, well, you can't go straight to a Fontan because the resistances, the pulmonary vascular resistance is too high right. in the neonatal and early infancy period, in early infancy, yep. to allow venous pressure to push the blood around the lungs. So you have to stage it out to an age where the venous pressure in the lungs is low okay. and, then the vein, and then the systemic venous pressure is sufficient 
to create a flow through the lungs. And when did these patients undergo the stage one Norwood procedure? Well, the first stage, which is uh, these days um, repairing the systemic, uh, systemic uh, flow through the aortic valve and the pulmonary artery to the aortic arch, and, and then placing some form of shunt, either a bradyoctalic shunt modified or an RV to PA conduit. Yep. Uh, that's done in the first few days of life. Right. And then the Second stage, the Fontan now has essentially been divided up into two stages. The first stage where we connect the venous return from the upper half of the body, the systemic, the superior vena cava to the lungs. And the second stage, completing the Fontan when we connect the inferior vena cava to the lungs. And that's done later. So the, the first stage of the Fontan is done round about five to six months yep. in, our, in our institution, four to six months. And then the uh, Fontan is completed, usually around about four to five years of age. In some centers, it's done earlier than that, but that's, we tend to try and get the completion done when children are really relatively restricted with their oxygenation and before they go to school so they can exercise as, as well as possible while they're at school. Yeah. Okay, so let's talk about the stage one, the Norwood procedure. Is there a sort of selection criteria for these patients or is anybody that's born with hyperplastic left heart syndrome uh, considered for Norwood or did they have to meet certain clinical? Yeah, well that's one of the difficult things. Essentially, in our institution in Birmingham, we turn down very few cases and we do get some cases referred in that other centres won't take on. One of the big problems is the tricuspid valve regurgitation or dysplasia of the tricuspid valve because obviously that's going to be the systemic valve and that, if that's already leaking at the time of uh, the, the stage one door, that's a big problem. And a lot of centres would consider that, that might be a contraindication. There are other situations where you have abnormal lymphatic drainage from the lungs, like Turner syndrome, which can be a big problem. Uh, but, and, and sometimes the ascending aorta is terribly small and makes the operation difficult. It's been, it's been quite difficult over the years to determine that the... Uh, size of the ascending aorta is a risk factor. But at the time of surgery, when you're operating on something very, very small, I think it must be factored in there somehow yep. into, into the outcomes. But uh, those are the sort of things that we're concerned about. And then, there are, although I've talked about hyperplasia in a biventricular heart, there are other groups of patients that also fall into this category, like those with atrioventricular septal defect and a uh, very small left side they sometimes or more often than not, not have AV valve regurgitation yep. and that makes it difficult as well or they might go on to develop that. So that's the sort of um, the, the Achilles heel, if you like, of the right. operation. Okay. And in terms of uh, speaking to the parents, what, what do you consent um, these parents for in terms of the operation, in terms of the risks and benefits? Well, initially the risks were very high, 50-50. Now I would think we would say around about 20%. I've been out of this game now for a few years and, and things have continued to improve, which is great. Yep. But if you look at the 30-day mortality, which in a way is pretty meaningless because of the uh, babies obviously want to survive longer than that. But the um, survival there is probably 90% now. Yep. Uh, and then, of course, there's still a dropout. So I think the real term survival we would talk to the parents about is what's the child going to be like at the end of one year when they've underdone the f undergone the first two stages. Yep. And hopefully we're getting up towards 80%. Right. 
I think it's in the high 70s here at the moment. So there's still a dropout, and that reflects the underlying you know, difficulty of the operation and the underlying uh, your, your acceptance of risk and what sort of cases you're going to operate on. Um, but I think the one year more the survival is the important figure for the moment, because once you've got the patients out of that stage, then they're generally um, okay. Yeah. for the foreseeable future anyway, out to the Fontan procedure. Excellent. But, I mean, counselling the family is very difficult. We do see them beforehand as surgeons, but primarily they're seen by the, uh, um, anti the, the physicians who do the antenatal diagnosis, and they've got all the figures and they point out the risks and benefits. The problem is, for the families, that these children are often diagnosed or antenatally quite late on in the yeah. um, pregnancy, and obviously that brings up a lot of difficulties for the, in decision-making for the families. Right. Um, so in terms of the actual operation itself, um, let's start with the sort of anaesthetic considerations. Are there any special anaesthetic considerations or special lines you put in before the operation? Well, I'm not an anaesthetist, so I can't uh, speak to that very much, but essentially its monitoring is a similar, uh, same really for all neonatal cardiac operations. And so we, we need good central access and they've often got that beforehand if they're having prostaglandin infusion, yeah. monitoring the arterial pressure and so forth. So the, um, the anaesthetic uh, interventions are much the same. Sometimes the children have been uh, quite tachypneic beforehand, and so they will uh, be uh, on intensive care beforehand and, and, and intubated and ventilated before we right. start the operation. I should mention there are a subset of patients, and I didn't initially, where the atrial septum is uh, really restrictive. It's like a post-pulmonary venous band, if you like, right. and that can create a lot of problems with output and, e and, and great deal of hypoxia. Fortunately, those are rare, and also they're a high-risk group of patients to deal with in the, in, in this, uh, in the Norwood uh, approach. And in terms of starting the operation, do you do a full stenotomy? And yes, and yes, a full stenotomy. And, uh, then we go on in our centre here, uh, selected cerebral fusion for the operation itself, right. with uh, very short periods, if necessary, of circulate, cerebral circulatory arrest. Okay. And how do you cannulate? Do you cannulate the right atrium and the? Uh, well, the right atrium, we put a single cannula in, yep. and uh, the uh, gordic tube is anastomosed to the anominate artery for cerebral and body perfusion. Yep. And then when we're working on the uh, aortic heart repair, we can continue the cerebral perfusion. It's been very difficult, I think, at the moment for those centres looking at outcomes of uh, cerebral protection to determine whether that's an advantage or not. But in terms of when you're starting the operation, it does seem to give you a little bit of leeway in terms of time and not perhaps having to rush so much, uh, being constrained by circulatory, cerebral circulatory arrest. In, uh, under hypothermia down yep. to 18 degrees centigrade. Right. And are you able to describe the sort of basic steps that you've taken in Norwood procedure? Well, essentially, we go on bypass, we cool down, and then we um, divide the pulmonary artery, uh, re-anastomose the pulmonary artery sometimes with the patch so the left and right pulmonary artery is connected. We repair the arch with a patch of pulmonary homograph material. We tend to use that. We have we're fortunate that we have that available still, yep. and it seems to stand up very well in the long term to um, even into adult life as a, a patch for the aortic arch. 
And then here, since 2002, we've put a Gore-Tex tube from the right ventricle to the pulmonary artery for the pulmonary flow because what we're doing is all the blood flow from the right ventricle is going to the body yep. uh, through the reconstructed aorta. But for the pulmonary circulation, we can't rely on venous flow. We already said the resistances are too high. And so we put in a conduit. As I say, from 2002, we, we put an RVPA conduit. And we found for us at that time and, and subsequently that it's provided uh, a degree of stability in the intensive care and post-operative management, which we weren't able to achieve with a Blaylock shunt. Having said that, I'm well aware that other centers favor the Blaylock shunt and have, have, have achieved excellent results with it um, over the same period of time. There were concerns about the right ventriculotomy, what it would create abnormal rhythms of the heart, ventricular arrhythmias and so forth, or uh, damage the function of the heart, but we haven't demonstrated that so far. Excellent. Um, in terms of the actual, uh, and you also do an atrial, se uh, atrial septectomy, yeah, to, so that we don't have, don't have any pulmonary venous obstruction. Right, excellent. Um, in terms of the, your, your modification of the Sano shunt, you anastomose it to the right pulmonary artery? Yeah, but we, uh, initially it was described, well, uh, historically what happened was we had um, uh, a surgeon working with us from Japan called Koza Ishino, okay. and he went back to work with Sunji Sano in Akayama, and uh, Sunji was our registrar in Melbourne years ago. Right. And then I got to hear through him, I think he sent me an email saying well, they'd done an RVGPA conduit in a very small baby, and it was great success and seem to have advantages in the terms of diastolic runoff or lack of diastolic runoff into the pulmonary arteries. Um, and we, I well remember we had a child with a Blalock-Tausic shunt who we saw on the ward round very well and then half an hour later collapsed and, and needed resuscitation yeah. and I think eventually died. And it was, that's very dispiriting and it had been going on for years and everybody had tried different ways of managing the pulmonary vascular resistance because they felt that was the problem either increasing CO2 and putting nitrogen into the um, uh, ventilation gases and so forth. Yep. But I uh, then, for some reason, I just thought, well, I'll ring up Bill Norwood and see what he said. And I spoke to him directly, and his, his words were, the RVPA conduit is better than uh, sliced bread. You know, it's, it, it really works. He'd done 13, he said he had two deaths. Mm. So when we, uh, I think we did one more Blaylock Tarsic shunt, then we had a child it was very small, below, I think it was around two kilos, with all the head vessels coming off separately, so there was no innominate artery. Yep. So we then um, utilized that, I think, as an excuse, if you like, to do the RVPA conduit. Yep. And we haven't um, really looked back. Now, we put it to the left side initially, but we found that, for, in our experience, that got very stuck and difficult to dissect out. Yep. And so then we swung it over to the right side. Okay. Uh, because that gave us more um, easy access uh, where you're dissecting around the superior vena cava and you need to anastomose that to the pulmonary artery. It gave you a site actually to put it on. Yeah. One of the issues with the operation itself over the years has been differential size of the right and left pulmonary arteries and difficulty in getting the left side to really grow as well as the right. Yeah. Um, but you can usually overcome that with um, some surgery at the second stage with patching and so forth. But that's again, an area of difficulty with the operation even now. Okay. And when these babies, um, after the operation, do they come off on much support at all? Um, it's variable. I mean, usually we have some low-dose adrenaline and some bilirinone. And then post-operatively, 
it, it depends on how they behave and what they need. But they're often in an intensive care unit for some time. I think over the last few years that's diminished as our younger surgeons have got the handle of the operation a bit better than we did. Uh, but sometimes they can be in intensive care for some time. They still present a really chronic problem for management post-operatively, even on the ward sometimes. Right. And do you keep the chest open after the operation? Or yes, do we do. And that's, in a way, just as an aside, that's been one of the benefits of doing this sort of surgery. We've, over the years, managed to apply the, the, some of the practices that we've utilised for hyperplast to arch surgery in general, so for neonatal coarctation where there's a hyperplastic arch. So we're much more familiar now than we were with surgery for the head vessels and aortic arch and the proximal part of the descending aorta. Uh, and also, uh, we've learned that it's quite sensible to leave the chest open in a lot of neonatal reconstructions without compressor. We don't compress the heart, particularly when you're putting in a conduit, for instance, like repair of truncus arteriosus or uh, early results for atrioventricular septal defect, that sort of thing, aortic arch repairs. Yep. So we'll often delay chest closure for two or three days. Okay. Uh, just going back to the, um, the SANO shunt, um, the, there was a trial done in 2011 called the Single Ventricle Reconstruction Trial in America, which was a randomized controlled trial uh, with over 500 patients um, enrolled across 15 centers. Um, and they were comparing the modified BT shunt to the Sano shunt. And they found that at one year, the Sano shunt was, had a higher survival. After, but however, after about three years, the, uh, the difference was a little bit, a little bit less. Uh, it's, do, do you think there's any way of accounting for that? Or? I think it's very difficult. I mean, as I've already said, um, centers using the Blaylock Townsend shunt now, the modified shunt, have had a lot more success over the last few years, um, last 10 years in, in many centres than they had previously. So I guess it relates in part to the more intensive, intensive care and an awareness of uh, looking after patients a bit better in the intensive care unit acutely and getting them through the operation. Uh, for the, uh, I mean, I'll just anecdotally, fellows who have worked with us before when we were doing the Blaylock shunt much prefer looking after patients with an RVPA conduit. They seem much more stable in the post-operative period. Yep. Uh, and they've um, also, it's been quite a good operation as a rescue operation sometimes when they've had a blade shunt and have not been able to be weaned from the ventilator and support. If you change them over to an RVPA conduit, that will, uh, you, you, you can wean them. So I think that area is quite difficult and I don't fully understand why that should be. Right. But, uh, there are, I mean, there have basically been two things going on in parallel over the years. One is the management of the intensive care and an awareness of how to do that, both for the RVPA conduit and for the modified Blaylock shunt, yep. shunt, and of course the introduction of the RVPA conduit. And even in one institution, some surgeons would do an RVPA conduit and some would do a Blaylock shunt. Yep. So I think it's a bit, uh, I, I guess we have to uh, uh, see how things work out in the long run, but at the moment, uh, despite concerns about the ventriculotomy in the RVPA quantum, it doesn't seem to have come to fruition. Okay, thank you. Um, and how long do these babies stay in hospital for? Sometimes uh, two or three weeks, sometimes three or four months. And uh, some institutions have even had a policy of keeping the patients in hospital, the children in hospital, up until their second stage because they can be quite precarious. Yeah. I mean, one of the uh, monitoring at home, again, is another byproduct, if you like, of this condition, 
where uh, particularly from Milwaukee, the group there introduced a very um, uh, thoughtful program of home surveillance, monitoring with pulse oximeters, a flow chart, looking at weight gain and uh, issues like that because they realized that any little imbalance of the pulmonary vascular resistance, dehydration related to viral infections, uh, gastroenteritis, could tip the balance and the children could crash dramatically. Right. So th th that surveillance can now be extended to other children with palliative procedures. And uh, I think that's been another uh, benefit from these, this program. But no, they, they, they majority go through fairly well these days, quite quickly. Yeah. But there some, can be some children who chronically have bad ventricular function and we're not clear why sometimes those with AV valve regurgitation and they can really be a big problem both for the, um, the, the intensive care and all the people looking after them, but also particularly for the families, of course, because sometimes they're quite a long way from home and that can be a big drain on yep. them. Uh, so you, you touched on a little bit about the follow-up of these patients. Um, are they followed up by the surgeons or the, the physicians? Uh, the physicians. Generally, although there are, there are often discussions in our combined meetings between all of us about how individual patients are progressing. And are there any special investigations when you see them in, in the follow-up to prepare you for the second stage? Yeah, usually they have an MRI or in our situation often a, a cardiac catheter to determine whether the reconstruction is satisfactory, particularly the aortic arch. There's an incidence of recarctation of the aorta after these patients. So I think yep. here it's around about 15-20%. And those uh, may require balloon dilatation or rarely further surgical intervention. And then this can be done at the same time as the cava pulmonary shunt, the superior vena cava, so pulmonary artery anastomosis and repair of the pulmonary artery if necessary and removal of the, the shunt. Okay. Um, so when they do come in for the second um, operation, um, how do you do the restenotomy? We just uh, go straight down the midline again. Yep. And uh, our practice over the years, not everybody does this, but we've always put a Gore-Tex membrane yep. between the pericardial edges of the uh, previous uh, operation. Uh, so that gives you a nice uh, clean plane usually behind the sternum. And then you can find the edges of the pericardium e more easily. And as you probably know from your experience, once you're in the pericardium, the adhesions are generally a bit friendlier than they are yep. directly to the mediastinum. And um, in terms of the actual second stage procedure, um, do you prefer the hemifontan or do you do, you do the bidirectional? We do the bidirectional, Glenn. We've not had, we, I don't think we've ever done the hemifontan. Um, the hemifontan leads you on nicely to the um, intraatrial baffling yep. of the IVC to the pulmonary arteries. Um, almost since the inception of our success, first successful Norwoods, we've done an extra cardiac fontan. And are you able to describe just briefly how you, how you go about doing the bidirectional blend? Yeah, what we do is to uh, use circulatory arrest. So we cannulate the reconstructed ascending aorta and the right atrial cannulus place. We cool right down to below 20 degrees centigrade nasopharyngeal, um, arrest the circulation, usually without cardioplegia, so we don't have to go around the um, reconstructed aortic the adhesions can be quite severe there and you don't want to damage the phrenic nerve so for instance if you were unfortunate enough to damage the phrenic nerve on the right side dissecting out the superior vena cava and then the phrenic nerve on the left side that would be a disaster so yep. you have to bear these sort of possible problems in mind 
and then we remove, tie off the, uh, and remove the shunt, usually leaving a patch of the shunt on the right ventriculotomy, and, and then open out the, uh, the site where the gordic tube was inserted into the right pulmonary artery and place the uh, cut end of the SVC into that. Uh, quite often with the pulmonary homograph patch going across the midline if we have stenosis out into the left pulmonary artery. And usually you can dissect out uh, to the uh, bifurcation of the left pulmonary artery behind the reconstructed aorta if you have to, to put a patch in there. And are these patients managed any differently in the post-operative period? Yeah, they're generally much more straightforward to go through and they can be usually extubated and back on the ward yeah. the next day. So it's a dramatic difference in yeah. the outcome for, for these patients as opposed to their first stage. Right. And um, how many of the patients who, who undergo the Norwood end up having the bidirectional glen um, in terms of surviving to the bidirectional glen? Well, or? as I said, the survival now is, uh, if you take it out at a year, it's around about 75% of yep. those undergoing surgery. And it's possibly creeping up a bit more now. Okay, and would you ever consider transplantation in, in, uh, for these patients before doing things like the bidirectional glenoidal? Well, you might consider it, but you're not gonna get a heart generally. So that's yep. a determining factor as to whether or not you can do that. Um, that question, I think, generally arises much more after the bidirectional glen, right. and if they're not then their ventricular function is poor or there are problems with pulmonary vascular resistance which mean you can't really proceed to a fontan. So you might hold them in a, in a holding pattern if you like for a cable pulmonary shunt yep. and then contact one of our centres, Great Ormond Street, Newcastle to see whether or not a transplant might be wise and, and when it should be done. Right. So and, and I think from the point of view of the transplant centres they would prefer to do that at that stage rather than after a fontan, which is then proves difficult. So uh, lastly in this section, I just wanted to ask you about how, how you would do the fontan procedure in your institution. Okay, well what we do is double cannulate this time. We actually use two venous cannulae, one in the SVC and one in the low IVC. And we um, stay on bypass, so we cool down to about 32. And at that stage, what we can do is place a clamp on the, uh, having dissected out all the vessels, uh, we can place a clamp on the inferior vena cable RA junction, divide off the IVC, and uh, oversew the atrial end, and then connect a Gordex tube from the inferior vena cable area, anastomose that, usually with a, a 20 millimeter Gordex tube, up to the side of the right atrium, to the superior vena cava or actually the inferior border of the right pulmonary artery and sometimes the incision goes up into the superior vena cava as well it just lies on that spot there. Right. Uh, again there are various um, innovations that have been made which we haven't instituted as yet so that sometimes centers will place uh, a bifurcated cortex tube at the top end so it feeds into the left and the right pulmonary arteries right. but we just tend to put them straight in on the right side where we have placed the uh, superior cava. And in truth, we don't really aim to move either left or right very much, so that the flow of blood is really more or less facing each other, but that seems to be okay. And we usually fenestrate as well, place a little side clamp on the right atrium and make about a five millimeter connection, fenestration between the gordix tube and the atrium. Um, sometimes that stays open, Sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes it's too big and the cardiologists need to block it off with a 
umbrella quite type device later on. Right. But um, we feel that does help a bit, but still quite a lot of the patients have quite prolonged pleural effusions afterwards and are in hospital for a, a few weeks while that settles down. Um, others just go through very quickly. Um, and what's the purpose of the fenestration? Well, the idea is that it's, it drops the RA pressure or the, the venous, systemic venous pressure if there's change in pulmonary vascular resistance or um, increased cardiac output so that the, um, you have less tendency to produce a lot of pleural effusions. Yeah. But I think it's quite difficult to, to prove that that really has that benefit, and particularly when quite a lot of them block up, but that's what we do. Yep. So you mentioned that the cardiologist can help if um, fenestration is too large. Are there any other roles for hybrid sort of procedures in, in hyperplastic left heart syndrome? Yeah, we've, we've done hybrid procedures and I think for me I've been rather out of that in the development of that over the last uh, few years. But essentially patients, for instance, who have uh, almost intact atrial septum, those who are very small, maybe 2 kilograms or less, 2.5 kilograms or less, uh, those who have had some major cerebral insult, then we might keep the duct open with prostaglandin and put bilateral bands on to get them to a larger side. Then the question arises, then do we uh, go straight to a complex uh, uh, reconstruction of the great vessels with a vena cable anastomosis straight away? Or more likely, we've tended to go th for a modified uh, RVPA conduit straight away uh, two or three months out when the children are more robust but we've got limited um, experience of that we tend to we tend to go straight for a Nord if we can but uh, you know it's certainly uh, an area again which has been introduced which has allowed us to th you know think a lot more about how we manage these patients but in, in, in this institution on the whole we've gone for the Norwood procedure and restricted that sort of um, uh, approach to those patients, as I say, who are very small or have some under, other underlying problems. Um, and in terms of the Fontan circulation, what are the problems with the final sort of Fontan circulation for the patient? In well, they can start straight away or they can go on into adult life. And um, I think we still, as far as I know, we haven't got a good actuarial survival curve of the patients who, you know, going to the 30s and 40s. We certainly got Fontan patients from prior to hyperblastic left heart syndrome in their 40s and I think a few into the early 50s. So with good hemodynamics, patients can survive a long time. But they're very difficult, the hyperblasts are very different from the other group of patients like those with tricuspid atresia yep. where they're dependent on their left ventricle. These patients are dependent on their right ventricle for their systemic output. But if we look at the papers we've published over the years, out to about 15 years of age, the survival was very good, and I think it's up to 85%, 90%. So the dropout after the Fontan, because you have to be very selective, you don't want a bad Fontan, in quotes, one where there are going to be ongoing problems with a lot of effusions or uh, poor ventricular function, so there is some selection there. And if you can make the decision, you're probably better to leave them with a cable pulmonary shunt and then go on to consideration for a heart transplant. But there's always this balance, are you going to get a heart or not? And realistically, in a lot of situations, of course, we're not going to. Fine. Uh, and finally, do you see any sort of difference in the future for hyperplastic left heart syndrome, or do you see it continuing um, with the current mode of? 
I think for the moment we could carry on with, in the same way. There might there will be maybe some really dramatic new ideas as to how to manage them. But generally it might be tweaking around the edges to a large extent. Um, can we diagnose the make the diagnosis antenatally much earlier? You know, supposing we can make it at ten or twelve weeks, or there was a way with um, genetic markers now from the maternal blood looking at chromatin from the fetus in the maternal blood to make that diagnosis and that would be quite dramatic yeah. in the sense that I suspect that some families then in that circumstance where the baby was much smaller it might be easier for them to take the view that they would go for a termination of pregnancy. I mean the termination rates as I'm sure you know in the whole of Europe very greatly so I think in our region here, termination rates for complex uh, or antenatally diagnosed heart problems is around about 25%. Whereas if you go to the continent, Spain and France and so forth, it's closer to 90%. So there's a lot of eth ethnic, religious, societal factors that come into um, those sort of decisions in different countries. And Historically, we had a big. I think we still got the largest program in Europe for this condition, because of the um, the, the way antenatal diagnosis has been approached and the lack of termination. Whereas, I say in other countries, termination for these more complex conditions is much uh, uh, more usual, and so the um, the uh, conditions are not really seen there. Thank you. So now we'll just move on to our sort of next section on, on general aspects. Um, so what made you decide to do congenital surgery and um, who were your sort of mentors for getting into this profession? Well I started like everybody else at that stage. I qualified in 1970 in medical school and actually my first job was uh, SHO for uh, um, open heart unit at the London Hospital, believe it or not, leaning on femoral arteries and all that sort of thing. Uh, so I was quite inspired then and then I was, had the good fortune on my general surgical training to work in Southampton with uh, uh, Jim Munro, um, very much a gentleman and sadly missed now. He died quite early in, in, in his retirement. But he was a great teacher and so was Sir Keith Ross. And so I spent time there, I think two years, and then um, I was fortunate enough to get a fellowship with their help with Sir Brian Barrett Boys at Green Lane and he was one of the doyens of cardiac surgery over the years having worked in the Mayo Clinic with John Kirkland and yeah. other centres. I was doing a lot of uh, neonatal repair work there and, and, and forging a field with his hypothermic techniques, the Kyoto Bra uh, Barrett Boys technique. So I went there for two years and with his team learnt a lot and then uh, I had the offer of a job to work for a few months in Melbourne with Roger. He'd just started the set up the unit there at Royal Children's Hospital in Melbourne. And uh, the rest, they say, is history. I stayed there for eight years and we forged, I think, one of the best units in the world at that time. Yep. And uh, we were trying hyperplast there, there, but we did a lot of other good work on, on, on neonates. And I learned a lot from Roger and we had a, a great time together. Um, what, what do you think are the attributes needed to be a good congenital heart surgeon? Oh, yeah, it's very difficult. I think they've changed over the years. I think if you, you are you probably aware that years ago, uh, surgeons were very much the uh, 
the bosses. And uh, I well remember in some institutions I worked, if one thoracic surgeon was in the hospital, the other one wouldn't come in. There was uh, that sort of, uh, they were gods, in, if you like. But as I've already intimated, the, um, the care of these patients that we look after now, they need a lot of teamwork. And that marrying of teamwork and your own sort of um, ego is, is quite difficult at times. And I think even now we're still learning that. But I think there's been an evolution from the individual um, godlike surgeon, if you like, can do anything, uh, to one where there is a, um, a more of a team approach. Having said that, you do need the, um, the drive and, and to some extent, not the, really the courage, that's not quite the, the word, but the, uh, dr the drive really to go ahead and believe in yourself that you can do this operation, that you can do this, these complex operations. Yeah. But also the humility to realize that you've got to learn and you can make mistakes and try and learn from others. So that balance yeah. is jolly difficult at times, I think, very, very difficult. And then, of course, over the years now, we've got the press and the government breathing down our necks. Mm -hmm. If there are any little mistakes or problems, that can be a big, have a big psychological impact on, on, on young surgeons. So from my point of view, I think if you have um, a spectrum of seniority in the unit, that's really helpful because the one can help the others. The young surgeons may have better ideas sometimes yes. and often and then the senior surgeon could be more reassuring and supportive if there are problems and help out in difficult cases and so forth. So I think that's what we've learned really over the last few years. Thanks. Um, in terms of um, nowadays for to be a congenital heart surgeon, you usually have to do a little bit of training towards the end of your uh, sort of general cardiac training. Um, and they usually do probably a fellowship or an ALTA program uh, period for about a year or 18 months. Uh, do you think this is enough to become a congenital heart surgeon or do you need some more? Well, it's a, I think it's enough to give people uh, the taste of it, really, to give them a good introduction and hopefully they'll get some cases to do. It's very difficult. I think it was um, uh, the surgeon in Stanford who said the difficult thing about cardiac surgery is getting to do it because everybody likes doing it. But you know, to hand it over, and particularly where one or two small mistakes can make you have huge risk for the patient, it, it's jolly difficult. And I'm well aware of that to mentor colleagues through. Having said that, there are individuals that one works with and you can see straight away they've got a flair for it. I've been thinking about this recently, actually, prior to this um, interview, and I suspect that a lot of surgeons can reach a certain level and then it's an acceptance of whether or not that's as far as they can go. And there are a few individuals who have a flair and they can do it from here to there. Yeah. And they don't have any, you know, they haven't, it's, it's like being a good artist. There are lots of average artists or average musicians or pianists, but there are some outstanding ones. And I think that's a difficult thing to face sometimes when you're going through a training program that you're not always necessarily going to be the, the top dog, as it yeah. were. But there are some who have that innate ability to, to, to fly, and um, I think that's the sort of people we want in this, this um, uh, topic, this subject, if we can. Sure. Um, uh, one of the other things that has happened recently is that we're moving towards sort of super centers for congenital heart surgery. Mm. Um, what are the sort of advantages and disadvantages of that? Well, it's always been difficult to, with the mortality rates to work out 
what the advantages are. I think you speak to most surgeons, doing cases on a regular basis and having a sufficient number gives them confidence. Yeah. I think doing a few cases a year where you're continually worrying about outcomes and trying to learn it on a, few, a handful of cases is very difficult. So from my point of view, it, it seems logical that there should be larger centres, fewer centres, larger centres, and it allows the surgeons there to work together to have adequate numbers to gain experience. Yep. But also, importantly, you mentioned training, to have trainees going through where they're exposed to those cases and to get cases to do. Um, one of the things about adult cardiac surgery is that there's a, there's a growing sort of interventional side and cardiology side to a lot of the procedures that were traditionally done by uh, heart surgeons. Um, do, you, do you see that happening in congenital surgery well, as well? Well, it's happened, of course. It's happened. And uh, when I first came here in the late 80s, then we were doing, I think, 400, over 400 cases a year. And now 200 of those are done by the cardiologists. Okay. So ASD closure, some VSDs, coarctation in the older patient, outside the infant period, almost universally done by interventions. Yep. So it's had a major impact. And that's been to the benefit of the patient. Yep. But it also means, for instance, that we're very less familiar, like all vascular surgeons, with these complex reconstructions sometimes. Fine. And finally, uh, would you recommend a career in congenital heart surgery? Yeah, I, I would have to say yes, having done it. I think that providing one's in the right institution and rec receives, if you like, some protection, because I've seen uh, a lot of uh, problems arise from uh, lack of guidance, lack of uh, wisdom, if you like, in making decisions about what you should and shouldn't do. So I think it's very important to have a good mentor and a good chaperone, and somebody you can get on with, that you can work together with, and then uh, work in a unit where they're doing adequate numbers so that you can gain experience quite rapidly. Yeah. And also um, that you should feel comfortable with the surgery, that's very important, and realise that it's very much teamwork these days, all the way through from the um, uh, families to the liaison nurses, ward sisters, intensive care, all your doctors, you have to work together as a team. Yep. Okay, thank you very much. You're uh, welcome. Dr. Rowan. Thank you very much. Cheers. Thank you for listening to CTS Net to Go, your resource for podcasts focusing on cardiothoracic surgery. Find more discussions as well as surgical videos and other cardiothoracic surgery resources at ctsnet.org. You can also keep up with CTSNet by subscribing to the YouTube channel at CTSNet Video, by following at CTSNet.org on Twitter, or by liking CTSNet's page on Facebook. I'm Shanda Blackman. Thank you for joining us on this latest episode of CTSNet to Go. Have a great day.